I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I'm here today with Meng Jin, who is the debut author of Little Gods, a Kundaman fellow. She is a graduate of Harvard University and Hunter College. She currently lives in San Francisco. So welcome, Meng. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to discuss Little Gods, which was beautifully written. Like from the very first page, I just was drawn in immediately by your writing style and the things you were telling and the way that you told it. So I'm delighted to get to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for reading the book at all and also (laughs) for those kind words. Oh, we were just talking about covers. I also happen to love your book cover. Not that you judge a book by its cover. But it's a pretty awesome cover. I love Do you the love cover it? as well. Yeah, I was so thrilled when I saw it. So just to describe what I'm talking about, Little Gods, how do I even describe this? It's like a red with a little dark purple and some scattered gold dots. So go Google it or something. But when you're buying it, you can see the title. It's, anyway, it's Little Gods. It's a great cover. So very captivating and very reflective of sort of the interest that the book will take you away with as you read it. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends said that the dots invoked mathematics, mm. which I could kind of see, and I like thinking about that. Interesting. Yeah. I like it. So first of all, tell us what Little Gods is about. Yeah, so Little Gods is a story about migrations. Migrations through time, place, and class. And it is centered around a Chinese woman physicist named Su Lan. She's, this is not a spoiler because it happens <laughs> pretty early in the book, but she's dead when the book begins, more or less. And so the story is told through the fragmented gazes of other people in her life. And they don't quite add up to a whole picture. So for me, the book is also about the ways in which we are known and unknown to others and to ourselves. And what inspired you to write this book? What inspired me to write this book? So many things. I mean, the seed of the idea, which was in the opening scene, came to me maybe six years ago. And that was the idea of a child being born on the night of June 4th, 1989 in Beijing and her father disappearing that night. And very much like the reader, I didn't know like, you know, what had happened to this child, who she was and who her father was and why he had left. So I spent some years trying to figure that out through many abandoned drafts. (laughs) 
And then the book really came together for me when I realized that Sulan was going to be like this intentional absence in the narrative, mm-hmm. and that the narrative would revolve around her. Very cool. I remember this whole Tiananmen Square incident and like yeah. being in school and stopping class the next day to all oh, wow. discuss the events. And yeah. I know you have a family connection to this event yeah. too, right? I read that your father yeah. told you that you, when you were five years old, you tell the story. Yeah, I've always been really interested in Chinese history, but the reason this event sort of you know, stuck in my mind, right, and wouldn't leave me alone was because I was born, you know, in the spring of 1989, not on June 4th, but... You're so young. <laughs> the, I mean, what a lot of people don't know about these protests is that the massacre happened on that night, but the protests lasted for months, right? And so that was what was so remarkable about it was that Tiananmen Square was being occupied since late April. And so I was born in in spring of that year. And, you know, I remember as a child, my father telling me that if it hadn't been for me, being an infant and requiring his care, he would have been in Beijing protesting with the students. And, you know, I must have always been slightly inclined to storytelling because that great story stuck in my mind. And I began to imagine, you know, that my birth had (laughs) saved his life. And so, you know, this inciting incident in my book is sort of like a reimagining of that, you know, what if my father had been a different person if he had gone? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad that he stayed home and <laughs> we get to have this conversation yes. today and that the world has worked out. There was so much of a math, science, physics mm. influence in this book, obviously. Right. Is this what you studied? Like, tell me your personal connection to this. Sure. Yeah, I studied physics when I started college. I wanted to be a physics major, but I abandoned it pretty quickly because I realized that I was more interested in the conceptual elements of physics than in doing problem sets every week <laughs> for my classes. And also like the physics classes were in really ugly classrooms <laughs> and the humanities classes were in beautiful classrooms. <laughs> so I started gravitating towards the humanities when I was in college. But I mean, I still love physics and I love Like while I was reading this book, or sorry, while I was writing this book, I was reading a lot of these like popular science books written by physicists, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and also Carlo Rovelli's two recent books on physics, among others. But what I really loved about those books was how beautiful the language was actually and how beautiful the concepts were. I was so moved by (laughs) things like relativity. (laughs) And I knew that my character was a woman scientist. I didn't really know what kind of scientist she was yet. But I decided to try making her a physicist because I was so interested by these ideas. And once I did that, you know, the physics ideas and like the sort of metaphorical potentials that they opened up just seemed to jive really well with the other themes in the book, like loss and grief Mm -hmm. and time, of course. And I love how much passion Sulan had for physics, right? right? The way you described it, that she couldn't wait to get back to it, even after she, well, I don't want to give anything away, but it, that it was something so sort of deep in her soul and yeah. that really just set 
her soul aflame to just right. get back in it and do it some more. Do you feel like that? A, about physics. B, about writing. Yeah, I mean... C, neither. <laughs> D, both. <laughs> the correct answer is B. <laughs> the reason I didn't end up going into physics was because I didn't feel that way about physics. And I sort of, as you know, I loved it and I thought certain concepts were beautiful, but I, I was like, I feel like I would be better at physics if I had this burning desire to finish my problem sets every week. <laughs> yeah, but I definitely feel that way about writing. And I do think, I mean, it's a very astute question because those parts where I write about Sulan's passion for physics, I'm definitely translating some of my own experience as a writer. It's hard to capture that without feeling it about something, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that somebody feels that excited if you don't actually feel excited about something. Yeah. And like, so I actually rewrote a lot of that section in the beginning when she, right after Tiananmen Square, when mm -hmm. she's like sort of depressed and can't do anything and then gets back into physics after the 2016 election. Mm. Because I had an experience with my novel after the 2016 election in which I was just very disillusioned with art and wondered why we were making art at all. Like, why would someone read a book when we should all just be on the streets? And part of like finding and feeling like myself again was reminding myself why literature was important to me. So did you start writing? I know you had been working on this for quite some time, but after the election, did it renew like the energy you had in this project? Like, did you clear the decks and like, tell me more about the process of when you were writing this. Did yeah. you just say, okay, I know I'm like, now I'm giving up on this. I've lost all hope, but now I've come back to it. And now I'm in it with a vengeance because blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely had a little bit of that kind of experience. I read a lot of Audre Lorde and Lucille Clifton and James Baldwin to be, you know, for like spirit guides. And there's an Audre Lorde quote about self-care and how like survival is an act of resistance. And that definitely was on my mind when I found my way back into the book. And give me a visual of how you wrote this book. Were oh. you at your desk? <laughs> Were you in coffee shops? Like, I'd like to just know how pe people write. And Yeah, the visual is very disgusting. It's like me not without like brushing my teeth or <laughs> washing my face, sitting at my desk, getting up and putting on whatever clothes I'm wearing or whatever clothes are nearby. And when I was deep in the book, I just woke up and sat at my desk and like wrote until my partner came home. <laughs> and there's actually this Ada Limon poem that's called Love Poem with apologies for my appearance <laughs> in which she talks about like, like the same like forest green hoodie and like the pistachio shells and like the clementine peels. That's very much my process. <laughs> I think the day I found that poem, I actually like had given up on eating proper food and was just eating a big bag of Costco pistachios. <laughs> Any other go-to foods? I eat a lot of different foods, but while, I, while I'm deep in a yeah. writing project, I'm just like, oh, let me something that doesn't take any time. So a lot of snacks. Yeah. Awesome. I don't usually ask that question. I don't know. But <laughs> thank you for the pistachios. That's interesting. I don't know why. I feel like when I can visualize an author and what they're doing, somehow it 
informs the book in some way, but maybe not. <laughs> I really liked the scene where the neighbor, whose name is escaping me right now, what is the neighbor? Zhu Zhu Wen? Yeah, okay. Zhu Wen. Zhu, okay. She does not want to leave her apartment. Right. The Chinese developers are banging down the door, increasing their offers to get her to move. Right. Her husband has passed away a while ago and is had been blind and then died and is visiting her as a spirit. And right. she feels like, if I move, how will the spirit ever find me? Right. Which is such an interesting thing in and of itself. Yeah. Because the spirit, the idea of believing in the spirit to begin with is already a lot of leaps of the imagination. Like, I don't know, maybe spirits know when you move. Who knows? Like, right. Anyway, she didn't feel that way. And she had a whole altar and she was set in her ways and right. refused to move in that moment for that reason. So tell me a, li- a little more about that and if you've had experience yourself with those types of, I mean, you described it in such a visual way. I feel mm. like you almost like could have put a photograph of the altar in the book because I can see oh, it so well altar. in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I unfortunately have not had any encounters with the spirit world myself. I mean, the actual altar <laughs> even. Not, I, but, I didn't think about this. I mean, I should have asked that. That's actually more interesting. Okay. So you didn't have, I mean, like, have you seen people, have you seen altars like yeah. that in people's homes or? Yeah. I, I mean, altars for the dead are very common in Chinese homes. So like in any of my family homes, there it's very simple usually, not as intense is the one that I described in the book. Yeah, it's usually a photograph of the deceased with a little pot for incense and like maybe some fruit or flowers and or flowers. Yeah, so they're very common in Chinese homes. I did see an altar that inspired the altar in my book, which was just so hodgepodge, right? There's mm-hmm. There were political figures among Buddhas and this was like some distant family member's home. And they I remember distinctly that they also had a picture of the Virgin Mary. And the reasoning was that they had family in America, us, mm-hmm. and that they needed to sort of like, you know, pray to the American gods so that they would bless their American family, which I thought was very sweet, but also kind of indicative of, you know, of very indicative of contemporary China because the Chinese Communist Party is officially atheist. And I do think that, you know, China, there's a real spiritual vacuum in contemporary China. A lot of it is being occupied by capitalism. But also that altar that I saw seemed like such a great representation of how um, individuals will, you know, make their own ways to fill that spiritual vacuum in creative and interesting and like sort of tender ways. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the book has to do with mother-daughter relationships, trying to reconceptualize your mother as like a whole person. What is this person really like? And filling out sort of the blanks in a way. Yeah. I was interested, does this come from a need for you to learn more about your own mother? Mm. What's your relationship like with your mom? Sorry for prying. Yeah. But did it come from that? Or did it come from maybe a relationship between a mom and a grandmother or a relationship you'd seen? Or did you just make the whole thing up? Well, I've always just been fascinated by mother-daughter relationships. I think they're just such rich ground Mm -hmm. for fiction and for stories because women and girls are really interesting. I think that part of what drove me to write about mother-daughter relationships in this book was a desire to portray a more complex portrait of motherhood. Just because I think in our society, there's 
a very narrow vision of what proper motherhood should look like. And as a result, like a lot of mothers feel a lot of shame, right? Especially working moms or moms who don't fit that image of, you know, that nurturing, loving mom who's packing lunches for her kids. And Sulan certainly is not a mother like that, right? And I mentioned the Florida Project because there's this beautiful mother-daughter portrait in that movie. It's a single mom raising a daughter in an Orlando motel. They're very poor. She, on paper, is a terrible mother, leaves her daughter alone for most of the day to her own, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever she wants to do in, you know, the hotel parking lot. At one point, you know, she's always like cursing in front of her child, like dressing very, you know, wearing very revealing clothes. At one point, she even like um, does some sex work while her daughter's in the bathroom. And so on paper, Now I feel like such a good mom. (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, but the thing is, when you see that movie, the portrait of that relationship, you can also see how respectful and loving that relationship is and how even though this child doesn't have, you know, the conditions that on paper seem like are necessary for a good childhood, she's there's a lot of joy, you know, in her childhood still, a lot of joy and love and light. And so when the state intervenes to deem that the mother is not fit to take care of her child, as I as a viewer, you know, felt heartbroken mm-hmm. for that family and that separation. And I think in my book, I wanted to also write about a relationship that on paper might, you know, a mother who on paper might look like a bad mother, Mm -hmm. but to complicate that, right, and present another image of what motherhood might look like. I saw a movie somewhat similar to that a long time ago. I feel like it was Susan Sarandon and I want to say it was like a young Natalie Portman and they lived Mm -hmm. in motels and kept getting evicted everywhere and Anyway, oh, I'm going to look it up and send yeah, it to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'd love that's to another, see it. just like the two of them, single mom, yeah. complicated situation. But yeah. I don't know, it reminds me of that. We can like swap our movie recommendations. Yeah. I'll send you my <laughs> Netflix cue or whatever. Yeah. And your mom, though, do you want to talk about that? Or oh. do you, would you prefer not to? <laughs> well, I don't really have permission from her. I feel okay. like it's like her life. Okay. Right? Yeah. And what if she hears this and is upset about the way I portrayed her. Totally. I mean, my mom would probably be upset. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll leave our moms out of this, yeah. but okay. Good, good to know. What is coming next for you after this beautiful book? Mm, I'm working on a second novel. Okay. I feel like a lot of, I don't like to talk about it too much because I feel like a lot of the, it can dissipate the energy and desire to write when you talk about it. So like if I bottle in all my feelings about my second book, it'll come out on the page better. So I'm writing a second book. But I'm also working on short stories. There's a short story that's very close to my heart and hard to write that I'm spinning around in the back of my head. Oh, I can't wait for that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you outline? What's your process? Like when you have a, it sounds like you don't, I'm going to take a guess, but it sounds like all of this lives in your, in your head and you mix it all up with all this energy and it comes out (laughs) beautifully. Do you do any outlining? Do you have a general sense when you start of where you're going or the ending or are you more character driven? How did you craft it? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, this book, um, this book was about the absence of the, anyway. No, no. I mean, this book, I did so many different things because I started writing it before I knew how to write anything. Right. So I 
part of writing this book was also figuring out how who I was as a writer and how I wrote. And by the end, I did a lot of out- outlining and like drafting in the beginning. Um, but by the end, I figured out that I was more of an intuitive writer. And so like by the last drafts, I actually started the drafts on a blank page and would just write without feeling beholden to the former drafts mm-hmm. because I felt like the story would come out more organically that way and elegantly, I and hope. How, how did you, did you learn it all trial and error? Did you take classes? Did you have people reading your book? Did you? Everything. All of it. Yeah, yeah. whatever works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. But now I definitely, I think part of writing this book was figuring out that if you have a sense of, or if, if I have a sense of where a story is going and where it's starting, and especially for me, it's important to like have a sense of how it's going to feel like the the way the words move on the page or like the way the sentences move. Mm-hmm. If I can like hear, if I can start hearing that in my head, then I know it's like, okay, now I can start writing. Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, there's something almost musical about it, right? The way that you, the way your sentences are, I'm not going to describe it well, but I don't know. It's very like lyrical. Yes. Well, thank you. Know. Maybe I'll, I'll throw that word out there. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? I think read anything you can get your hands on. Like one of the, I did an MFA, mm-hmm. but, and I've taken a bunch of creative writing workshops, but definitely I've learned most from other books, you know, books that I love and go back to and try to figure out how they're working and doing something, trying to copy that. <laughs> yeah. So read anything you can get your hands on, find out what you love and find out, you know, what, and also don't be afraid to do the thing that's failing because if it's failing, it's probably because it's harder to do and more interesting. How do you pull yourself off the ground after you finish a draft and then you decide, you know what, I'm throwing this out and starting again. Like, what is it that gives you the drive to just try again? Is it the passion for the writing? Hmm. Like, how, how, like, what made you not give up on this book and maybe 10,000 other people who started a book like this and then didn't finish it? I always wonder that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the story didn't let me go until I figured out how to tell it right, hmm. if that makes sense. Like, by the end of the draft, like by the last final drafts, I did feel like I'd been released. <laughs> like it's a problem you were trying to solve. Right. Like you kept trying to figure out the answer. Yeah. Or like untie a knot mm-hmm. or like get rid of some like cloud in my head. So it's less drive and determination and more just like getting an annoying knot out of the way. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. But, <laughs> but it's also, I mean, for me, when I'm writing well, it's so pleasurable. Like there's nothing better. So also that. That's nice. Yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like you picked the right job then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for sharing your story and for writing this beautiful novel. Thank you so much for having You're me. Welcome. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro FM, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 
Oh, 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 oh,